Well, I have to tell you, it is a sincere joy to get to be here with you guys today. Um, I don't know what it was about this week. I don't know if it was just the fact that we had a brief pause without any kind of winter crisis or, uh, you know, some kind of natural disaster or unprecedented historic event. Um, But just this week, just sitting and thinking about being here with you on Sunday made my heart extremely joyful. I truly do love my church family. And um, so thank you for letting me be your pastor. You know, one of the few things I have learned in my few years as a husband, a father, and a pastor is that when somebody asks a difficult question, there are two things at play. First, there is the question, the actual stated inquiry. And then there is the real question, the question behind the question. For example, uh, imagine your wife's birthday is coming up on Friday, but on Wednesday she asks, what are you doing on Friday night? Now, we all know that her stated question is, what are you doing on Friday night? But the real question is, do you remember that my birthday's on Friday? Right? Um, how about another question for those of you that have, another example for those of you that have kids. Suppose you're a child who normally shows no interest when you come home. One day unexpectedly meets you at the door and asks, how's your day, dad? Can I help you with anything? As sweet as that is, it's probably not all that sincere. They probably have not suddenly come to care about how your day was or how they could help you. The, the question might be, how was your day, dad? Can I help you with anything? The real question might be, how mad will you be when I tell you that I broke the window with my baseball? So there's the question and then the real question. Now, as a pastor, I've heard my fair share of surface-level questions that are backed by the real question. I'll give you a couple examples. Doesn't God want us to be happy? When somebody asks that, chances are they are looking, subtly searching for some kind of justification of it errant desire or sin. Or here's another question that I get a lot. Didn't Jesus flip tables and call people a brood of vipers? And, and the real question behind that, so there's the question, didn't Jesus do this? The real question is, don't I have the right to tell people my mind? And so we, we have in all these instances, the initial question and then the underlying hidden question, the real question, the question behind the question. We see the same thing in Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12. The Pharisees come to Jesus to ask a question about divorce. However, as we will see, they were not really asking about divorce. There were hidden motives. And the real question, the question of who Jesus is and what right he has to teach them about the law, lay beneath their deceitful test. And I think if we read this dialogue rightly, it will show more about the, human, the sinful human heart than it actually does about divorce. Yes, we will learn a ton about Jesus' view of divorce, but we're going to find out more about the underlying question. Here's what we're going to see. Man's heart is naturally hardened against the will of God, which is ultimately made evident by a rejection of Jesus. In this case, divorce may be the question on the Pharisees' lips, but rejection of Jesus lies at the root of their hearts. Matthew 19, 1 through 2 sets the context for the passage. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. 
and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Now, the detail that Jesus had left Galilee in the north and had crossed the Jordan River to the south is not a small detail in Matthew's gospel. Jerusalem lies to the south. The cross lies to the south. And so in this little detail about Jesus' geographic movements, Matthew is subtly showing us that the cross is still very much at the center of his gospel. Jesus is moving closer and closer and closer in fulfillment to God's plan to accomplish salvation uh, through Jesus' death. Now, his every intention is that even in this story about divorce and the dialogue on divorce, that at the same time, we will have, our, uh, have one eye on Golgotha. So we have one eye on Golgotha, one eye on the cross, one eye on the empty tomb, and we have one eye on divorce. So, so in everything from here on out, we're going to read every text in light of his upcoming death, because we cannot get the point of the passage if we do not read it in light of the cross and in light of the tomb. So even this pretend question on divorce, this superficial question that the the Pharisees come with, there's an underlying narrative happening. And here's what we're going to see. The closer Jesus comes to Jerusalem, the closer he comes to the cross, the more the Pharisees up their attempts, increase their hostility, increase their opposition. At this point, they're going to ask about divorce. At the next point, they're going to ask about his authority. And then later, they're going to ask about taxes. And then when they fail altogether to discredit him and publicly humiliate him, they're going to kill him, climaxing the narrative of Matthew altogether. But the closer Jesus comes to Jerusalem, we also see that his restorative work continues. He doesn't stop healing. He doesn't stop loving people. And it's the fact that it's at this moment when the blind are seeing, the deaf are hearing, the mute are speaking, the lame are walking, that the Pharisees attempt to test Jesus with this question of divorce. It actually shows us a lot about their hearts. They are seeing Isaiah 35, the the end time promises of, of when God will come and bring joy to the wilderness and make blind eyes see and deaf ears hear and the mute sing. They are seeing all this come to life. And it's at that moment that they decide it's a time to try to publicly trip him up and humiliate him. That is the intensity of their hatred. And so we have these two things in tension throughout the rest of Matthew's gospel. You have the beauty of restoration held in tension with the increasing hatred of unbelieving people. Now, here's what's beautiful about that. By the end of Matthew, the climax of their hatred and the climax of restoration come together in one place, at the cross. Nowhere else do we see men hate the Son of God so vehemently than at the cross. And yet, nowhere else do we see the beauty of restoration and reconciliation with God so perfectly displayed. So as these two things continue to increase, we're going to see a beautiful picture of the gospel. Now, with people getting up to walk for the first time, with the blind seeing the blue sky for the first time, I mean, it's not hard to just imagine that in your mind to to, to think of what might a blind person say when they see the color of the horizon, when they see a sunset for the very first time and how exciting that is. One would think that with all that going on in this context, that there are better questions to ask Jesus. For example, Jesus, when are you going to make the whole world like this? 
When are you going to end all such suffering? And when will all suffering, blindness, deafness, muteness, death itself meet its end? Maybe this would be a good point for the Pharisees to begin reevaluating their previous viewpoints about Jesus. Maybe come to repentance. He's making the blind see. Maybe we were wrong. Maybe we need to rethink who we think he is. But no, it's in the context of this deep, vehement hatred. And then in the context of this beautiful restoration that the Pharisees decide this is a perfect time to ask him about divorce. Not so sure I would have, that wouldn't have been the thought on my mind, seeing a blind man see and the lame man walk for the first time. Oh yeah, that's cool, Jesus. Hey, what do you think about divorce? Rejection is quite bizarre. Unbelief is quite bizarre. And it leads us to some very odd tendencies and it does here. Matthew tells us very early on that the Pharisees don't really care about the answer to divorce. It says, and the Pharisees came up to him and tested him. Now it's been said before, but I think it's worth saying again, there's only two people in Matthew's gospel that test Jesus, the Pharisees and the devil. And they both test him for the same reason. They want him to fall. They want him to sin. They want to find some kind of contradiction in him and disqualify him from his redemptive work and disqualify him from any claim of being the righteous royal son of God. That's what they want. And so the real desire is not to learn anything about divorce, but to see him to fall publicly. Now, I think that's important to to keep in mind because the question is, Jesus, what do you think about divorce? But the real question that's underlying the entire dialogue is, who is this man to tell us, the righteous religious Pharisees, about God's law? So they they basically are saying, you want to play ball, Jesus? We'll throw you a curveball and see if you can hit it. That's essentially what they're doing. They come with the pretense of divorce, but they also come in absolute, resolute rejection of him. So I just think that's helpful because we turn to Matthew 19 sometimes and we're like, this is the passage on divorce. And you're right. This is a passage that teaches us about divorce. However, the underlying main point of the passage is to show man's unbelieving and rejecting heart. It actually gives us a glimpse of the sinful human heart. It's not just a moral story of why you shouldn't get divorced. It actually shows what's true about every human heart in regards to Jesus. And I think we'll see that even in trying to keep the law, the letter of the law, sinners are naturally resistant and unbelieving in their heart. Sinners are naturally resistant to Jesus. The Pharisees ask, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? If the question was sincere, like I said before, this would be a very strange time and place to ask that question. With all these healings going on, you would think they'd be asking questions about healings. How are you doing that? Where's your authority coming from? But we know it's not a sincere question. And because it's not a sincere question, and because the intent of the question is meant to publicly discredit Jesus, we can see what their real intent is. If Jesus says, yes, yes, it is permissible for a man to divorce his wife 
for any cause, then he will ultimately undermine the sanctity of marriage and essentially invite people to discard their marriages at will. You can imagine what the Pharisees could do with that, right? If Jesus says, yes, a man could divorce his wife for any reason, then they can go throughout all Israel and say, Jesus doesn't care about marriage. But let's think about the other side of the rock in the hard place. If Jesus says no, then he's going to be going against thousands of generations of rabbinical tradition, as well as the written command of Moses himself, which is almost a capital offense to say anything in contradiction to Moses. So just to, just to show you the reality of this question, in many respects, it's the perfect legal trap. The perfect legal trap. In fact, all of their tests present a perfect legal, te- legal trap. Should we pay taxes? That's, that's another question that they're going to ask. In other words, are you willing to admit that the Romans have a right to tax Israel, the people of God? Well, if he says yes to that, then he's undermined the fact of, that God has called Israel to be a light among the nations. If he says no to that, then he basically says that they do not have to submit to the authority. It's a perfect legal trap over and over and over. Now, if you were a Jewish lawyer and you were asked that question, is it permissible for a man to divorce one's wife for any cause? A typical Jewish lawyer would turn to Deuteronomy 24. That's the source of the debate. So here's what Deuteronomy 24.1 says. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if he then finds no favor, if she then finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. Now it basically says like, it basically just saying if a man finds an indecency in his wife, he has to give her a certificate of divorce. He can't just kick her out. Right? So it gives some kind of restriction there. And it seems like a rather harsh law, doesn't it? What does indecency mean? Uh, in the actual Hebrew, it has the word of nakedness, right? You remember, guys, those of you that were here for the Genesis series, you remember there's a difference between Genesis 2, naked, right? That's, that's like naked in the shower. It's not, nothing's bad. And then there's Genesis 3, naked and ashamed. That's naked, right? You're not supposed to be naked. That's bad. They're naked here. Well, it's the same word here with indecency. If a man finds no favor with his wife anymore because of some kind of nakedness, that's just Texan speak for bad. <laughs> then he has every right to send her out of his house. Now, what exactly does this shameful nakedness look like? Well, that became the debate of rabbinical tradition for generations. Some rabbis said that indecency would not only include adultery, but it would include withholding intimacy. So if a, not to be too colorful here, but if a wife decided not to be with her husband for some reason and continuously put him off, I'm tired, honey, then he at some point has the right to send her out. Other rabbis said that if a wife developed an unattractive physical blemish that was unforeseen the day of their wedding, then he has a right to divorce her. So in other words, if you get a big mole right here, wife, then he has a a right to divorce you because that's indecent. Other rabbis said that it included cooking. If the wife spoiled the meal, burnt the meat, then the husband had every right to send her out because that was indecent. 
Now that's typical rabbinical tradition. While it's not true that Jewish rabbis said that a man could divorce his wife for any reason, the list of reasons they gave came fairly close to for any reason. Bad cook, mole on the neck, doesn't sleep with me enough, whatever, you have the right to divorce her. As we see, Jesus, the Son of God, does not carry on rabbinical tradition. That is not how he understands the text. After all, he was there when it was written. Jesus veers from the typical teaching. In fact, unlike most rabbis who would build their argument from Deuteronomy 24, Jesus goes even further back, back beyond Deuteronomy to the very beginning. I think they're expecting some kind of legal interpretive fight over Deuteronomy 24. And Jesus says, yeah, I know you want me to start with Deuteronomy 24. Let's start with Genesis 1 and 2. Totally takes them by surprise. That is not the way that you do legal battles in Jerusalem. You fight over the text at hand. But Jesus says, let's go back before that. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together let not man separate. So we take it all the way back to creation. In the beginning, God made male and female in his own image. My friends, as much bad teaching as there is this day, that was a good and gracious thing. Being male and female in God's economy didn't mean that it was better to be male and then female was kind of a side thought. No, both male and female have an equally inherent value being made in the image of God. He didn't make them the same. He made them wonderfully different, but yet complementary. So much so that when you put these two complementary parts together, they become one flesh, a mystery above mysteries. Nobody else can do that. To take two individuals and bring them together and make them one. And it was all an overflow of God's divine love. It was his invention. Marriage was his thought. He could have robot, created us to be some kind of robots and asymmetric, or whatever, what is that called, Anne? When you, when you divide a cell, it just kind of happens. You're a scientist. Anyway, A, whatever that is, when you can just do it naturally, we could all just split and continue to multiply that way, right? But God didn't make us to do that. God made male and God made female and his divine plan in this beautiful thing God made it so that the male being perfectly giving toward the bride and the bride being perfectly giving toward the husband would come together in this wonderful union that would display his goodness, display his love, display his wonderful intentions for humanity. The phrase one flesh expresses that indivisible quality with which God made marriage. From the start, marriage was never, ever meant to be a contract. You give 50% and I give 50%. No, that's not the way it was intended. It was intended to be a covenant. The deepest promise to be kept. Now, here's the thing. Regardless of what anyone might claim, you can ask anyone who's gone through it, divorce is always painful. 
always painful. It hurts. Why? Because God made man and woman when they got married to become one flesh. When they divorce, it's like flesh tearing. A man or a woman might as well rip off their own arm than get a divorce because it would be far less painful and have far less devastating effects in the future. Now we'll get to the grace side of divorce here in a minute, but right now just talking about God's intention. Divorce was not what God's original plan for marriage was. Divorce didn't fit into the blueprints of what God made. Jesus says as much in verse 6 when he gives the imperative, what therefore God has joined together, let not men separate. Now Jesus made his move. He revealed his hand. And now the Pharisees respond. He defended the sanctity of marriage. He put it on the highest level saying, no, God intended that when two people got married, that they were to become one flesh and that they were not to be separated. That's the original intention behind marriage. So now they make their move in this chess match. In the pharisaical mind, Jesus has just set himself up against Moses in Deuteronomy 24. And so they ask, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Now, in their view, if God did not intend for men and women to divorce their wives, if he didn't know that, if he didn't intend for that to happen from the beginning, then why does a command exist in the Bible for how one should divorce? In other words, if the rule exists, then why can't we? Jesus answers very bluntly, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. You see what's happening in the Pharisaical mind here? The Pharisees are so taken up with the letter of the law, what they can and cannot do, that they miss the heart of God. They miss the heart of God. They bask in Mosaic permission. Moses let us do it without failing to realize what the permission says about them. No doubt Moses gave a law permitting divorce, but it was not permission as much as it was protection. In the hardened sinful heart, a person is going to do what they're going to do without concern of whether or not it honors God and whether or not it harms people. That's our nature as selfish sinners. We care nothing about what God thinks. We care nothing about how it might hurt others. If we want a divorce, we're going to get it. We're going to separate. And if I can't legally divorce her, then I'm going to neglect her and hurt her and abuse her. I mean, that's the sinful human mindset. So divorce is given to put restrictions on that. God does not leave sinful people without limits. He knows their hearts better than they know. And so as we see from Genesis 1 and 2, marriage was meant to be perfect, a perfect covenant. The fall broke it. And because it was broken and because it became chaotic, the law in Deuteronomy 24 attempts to bring some kind of order to this chaos so that you don't have people just naturally walking out on their wives and husbands without any cause. He at least puts some stop gaps there so that people can be checked and balanced in this right that they have. So it's not so much permissive as it is restrictive. The Pharisees missed the fact that people were already dividing and hurting one another. 
That marriage was already broken as it was in Genesis 3. You see it in Genesis 6. I mean, the two things that tend to go together is increased violence, increased sexual immorality, and that is what brings judgment on the world as these two increasing of sins. So the law in Deuteronomy just puts a little bit of a speed break. They can't go 80 miles an hour. They can only stop at 60, right? So that's what the law is intended to do. Mankind's hard hearts continue to reject God's intentions for marriage. But that divorce law in in chapter 24 was just so that they wouldn't do that unchecked without any kind of check. Now, the fact that the law was given, the fact that God had to give a law legislating divorce should tell us more about our heart. Here's what one commentator says. The existence of divorce legislation is a pointer not to divine approval of divorce, but to human sinfulness. Have we ever stopped to think, rather than I have a right to divorce, have we ever stopped to think, why does divorce even exist? Is it really, is it really that way? You, you realize only broken people suffer broken marriages. And only broken people who suffer broken marriages need rules to show them when it's okay to break a covenant. My friends, I know we have many among us that have divorced. I know it's a hard teaching. Divorce is a sin when it's not done in biblical means, just like anger is a sin when it's not done with biblical means. Just like sex is a sin when it's not done in the biblical means. We don't have to fear that. There is grace that comes after that. We'll talk about that here in a minute. But I think we've got to bask in the reality of what divorce actually is. In and of itself. Jesus adds to the commandment. He drives it even deeper. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality. That's the one grounds he gives here in this text. And marries another commits adultery. Now, we should be hearing a parallel with the Sermon on the Mount, right? You have heard it said, but I say to you, well, he does it again. You have heard it said, it's okay for you to divorce your spouse for any reason. But I say to you that if you divorce your spouse, except on the grounds of sexual morality, you have committed adultery. And here again, he addresses that public understanding and gives the correct biblical teaching. In other words, it's not just about the letter of the law. It's about the heart of the law. God's heart is to protect the sanctity of marriage. You're not just two people coming together to live with one another and to share resources. You are two people coming together into one flesh to display his glory. That's what he intended for it to be. Jesus says explicitly that outside of a covenantal breach like sexual immorality, think of an affair. That divorce is actually adultery. Admittedly, this is a difficult statement, especially in light of how prevalent divorce is in our modern culture. People pursue divorce for many reasons, but according to uh, to Jesus, immorality is one of the only reasons which negates the fact that I can't divorce my wife when she burns the stake. I can't divorce my wife when she develops some uh, some kind of unforeseen blemish, like the rabbi said I could. And then if we take 1 Corinthians 7, 14 through 15, alongside of this, abandonment. 
could be added to the small list of grounds. And then some argue Exodus 21, 10 through 11, and Deuteronomy 21, 11 through 14 adds to the fact neglect and abuse could be added to the list. So if you want to know what the biblical grounds of divorce are, we have a very small list. It's not just because you don't see eye to eye. It must fall under negligence, abuse, sexual immorality, or abandonment. The hard teaching of divorce, according to a biblical perspective. And to divorce someone for just any reason is sin. It is a sin. In reality, the problem is not so much trying to find a reason for divorce, but it's why we divorce in the first place. That reveals much about our hearts as sinners. Now, as a side note, what does this mean for those of you who have gotten a divorce that was not biblically justified? We have a culture where even in the Bible Belt, 50% of marriages end in divorce. And way less than 50% of them are given due to any one of those biblical grounds. Oftentimes it's difference of taste, difference of goals. One wants to have children, one doesn't want to have children, and they don't see eye to eye, and so they break up. So there's many different reasons. And so chances are you are or you know someone who has gotten a divorce for reasons that are not biblical. So what does that mean? Here's the grace. Here's what I want you to hear. First, understand that your divorce is not the unforgivable sin. I don't think you should be threatened by the fact someone telling you that your past divorce was a sin because it is not any more unforgivable than your past anger, your past lust, your past gossip, your past greed, my desire to have a fifth piece of cake. It is not the unforgivable sin. When Jesus bled and died, he died to cover all of your sins. Your anger, your, last, your past porn addictions, your greediness, and your bad divorce. He forgave it at the cross. That's good news. You don't have to try to justify your past divorce. Just bask in the fact, yes, it was a sin, just like my anger, just like my gossip, just like my lust, and that sin needed to be paid through blood, and he paid it. Praise be to God. Second, humbly acknowledge that your unbiblical divorce was not according to God's will. Again, just like gossip, is it according to God's will? Just like lust isn't according to God's will, but also rest in the fact that your sin did not thwart God's plan for your life. Let me just read that one more time because I feel like there's some of us that need to take that in. Your past sins might not have been according to the will of God, but your past sins did not stop the plan of God for your life. You are not ruined trash because you got a divorce. You are not permanently disqualified from honoring God because you got a divorce. You are not some second-class lower Christian because you got a divorce. God's plan for you was to make you a son or daughter and to reign in his kingdom. And your divorce cannot stop that. 
Let me give you an example. I think it's safe to say David and Bathsheba should have never been together. Can we agree with that? They should have never been together. She was somebody else's wife. Everything about the way they got together was wrong. I mean, you just think about it. David's out on the roof. He should have been at war. He's walking around. And then this great king in our history that we love, the one that wrote the Psalms, was a perverted peeping Tom that watched her bathe on the roof. I mean, we, we hear news stories about that and that makes us sick, right? But that's what we see King David walking, just creepily watching this lady take a shower. And then he calls her and basically commits statutory rape in the sense of he uses his status as king. Bathsheba knows that she does it. She doesn't have all this freedom to tell the king no. The king calls, just imagine, put yourself in her shoes. The king calls you to his bedroom and orders you to sleep with him. That's essentially what happened. And then she gets pregnant, which was the consequence of their fornication. And what does David do? He doesn't confess. He murders her husband. All of that was bad. Nothing of what brought them together. Their wedding day. Can you imagine what it must have been in his thoughts on his wedding day of how he got there? Like most of us like the stories of how we met. Can you imagine asking David and Bathsheba at their dinner table? So tell me how you met. Everything about it was terrible. And yet it's David and Bathsheba's son, Solomon, that God chooses for the next Davidic king to build his temple. The point of that story and the reason he chooses Solomon is to show that God can cause roses to grow in trash heaps. You are not ruined. You on your own might have made a wreck of your past marriages, might have made a wreck of your relationships, might have this deep hurt and scar in your life, and you look back on that and it does nothing but bring pain. God can turn that desert in your life into a garden because He's sovereign. And praise God, you are not. Your choices. Your sins do not have the permanent effect that his sovereign ability has. So, I don't, have, I don't think you should be threatened at all to say, hey, I've had a divorce and it was wrong. Everything I did in that marriage was terrible. I was selfish. I was greedy. I was critical. Cheated on my wife. And that's how I met my new wife. You can look at the sin of that and still praise God that he's working in your life. It doesn't make it okay. It doesn't mean, hey, go do it again, right? But it does mean that your sin doesn't trump God's sovereignty. He is a good God and he is king. And the mistakes and sins and the fallacies of his Subjects do not change his plan. You will be just as shiny as the guy who never got a divorce in the final kingdom. And that will not be because of you. It'll be because of him. Now, finally, seek to honor God in the life you have now. Seek to honor God in the life you have now. 
If you left a previous marriage, and I just got to tell you, marriage in biblical terms is marriage between a man and a woman, okay? So, so it's a commitment together where you are, if, I'm, I'm not talking about common law marriage here, okay? I'm talking about formal marriage where you have covenanted and you have made a commitment. So if you're common law with someone, that's not real marriage. And there is repentance in some things that you need to do, right? Uh, for example, Someone came to, uh, come, came to me uh, a few years ago wanting to do their marriage. They had been living with each other. I said, you guys are going to have to move out. And let's go through some counseling. I know that's a hard teaching, but yes, you're not honoring God right now. Honor God right now, and then we'll talk about how you can honor God through marriage. Honor God in the present first, and then let's talk about how you can honor God in the future. So honor God with your life. Now, if you're in, if you left a previous marriage in an unbiblical way, and you are married to a new person. Should you then divorce your current spouse and try to go make amends with the past spouse? To your relief, the answer is a resounding no. <laughs> so like, whew, yeah. Here's the reality. Two sins don't make a right. Two sins don't make a right. Your divorce might have been a sin, and the only way to exacerbate that sin is to divorce again. I've been giving a, a biblical precedent for this. In the story of the Gibeonites in Joshua 9, God had commanded Israel not to covenant with the people of Canaan. They were not to set up any peace treaties. They were not to let them live. They were to fulfill his judgment and exact just judgment on these child-sacrificing, adulterous people. Well, the Gibeonites get smart, and they know that if Israel knows that they're just down the road, that they don't have a chance. So they get on this old cloak, and they put old bread in their hands, and they get old wineskins, and they come, and they dupe the Israelites into thinking they're from some far-off land. Now, Israel's sin in the, in the fact was that they failed to pray, God, give us wisdom, tell us whether or not we should enter into a covenant, and isn't that the way most first bad marriages start? We just got to jump in without praying. Well, that's what they did. They failed to ask counsel from the Lord. And they're like, great, let's have a covenant feast. Let's make it happen. So they made a vow. That was sin. What did God then expect them to do? To break the vow and then slaughter them? No, in fact, Saul tried that later. Saul tried to kill the Gibeonites. And God required Saul's sons because of it. They entered into the covenant through sin, but by God, he would make them keep that covenant. They would not try to make their sin right by committing another sin. My friends, if you are in a marriage with a, with, with a man, if you're a woman, and you're in a marriage with a man, if you're a man and you're in a marriage with a woman, you must stay with that person outside of any kind of biblical grounds of divorce. That is how you honor God now. Remove the escape hatch. There's no escape hatch. Just be settled that this is your one flesh. Don't rip off your other arm. Honor God with what you have now. Keep your vows. Be long-suffering. Look, quit looking behind at your past sins. My friends, I just want to give you the freedom. You don't have to linger in your past failed marriage. You don't have to linger there. 
you can look ahead, not justifying what you did, not justifying what the other person did, not justifying the failed marriage, but you can look to now and say, this is the marriage I'm in, and this is the marriage through which I will be faithful and honor God. Can you imagine how freeing that might be for you? You might have a divorce, and it was unbiblical. My friends, I have anger in my past, and it was unbiblical. I have lust in my past, and it was unbiblical. And without Christ, my divorce-free life, filled with lust and anger and gossip and greed, would have sent me straight to hell. Even if I never got a divorce. But because the grace of Christ is strong, he has overcome my sins. And he has overcome yours. So live in his grace. Now, all that's a side note. None of that really comes from the text. But um, just so you know, God did not intend marriage to come with an escape hatch. He meant for it to last. And this statement was just as shocking to the disciples. I don't know what the disciples thought, but if they were typical Jews, they thought probably that they could divorce their wives for any reason. In fact, I'm sure Peter had a couple of, you know, maybe it was his uh, sick prone mother-in-law that made him think about, maybe I can leave my wife and not to deal with this anymore. But whatever the case is, whatever they thought about, it's apparently a shock to them. They say to Jesus, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. In other words, let me just paraphrase their confusion. If marriage is meant to last and marriage was meant to be permanent and divorce for any reason is not permissible, then wouldn't it be better for people to remain unmarried? It's like, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. In other words, it is better for you to give up some kind of temporal pleasure or right if you cannot honor God with that pleasure or right. If you cannot enter into a marriage knowing that you have no other option but to stay married to that person, do not get married. This isn't said often enough in the church. But celibate, celibate singleness is a valid option. It's a valid option. What about intimacy? My friends, we don't quite call it intimacy, but when I get together with a group of guys around a fire pit, we're pretty close. I'm not going to kiss any of them, but still, I mean, it meets my need for affection when my brothers get around and hang out with me. We, we, have, we have lived in a generation that is taught that sex is a need and you must get it however you possibly can. That's not the biblical view of sex. Sex isn't a need. It's a wedding gift. It's, it's a wedding present from God. It's not, it's not given to everyone. It's given to those who have been called in a covenant marriage. It is better to abstain from sex if you cannot honor God in marriage than to enter into sin and it'd be far worse for you. Celibacy in our day is viewed as old-fashioned. It's just not a valid option. I mean, we, of course, you know, we've had all kinds of bad teaching about abstinence too, where we, we talk about, well, we're going to teach them abstinence by telling them sex is bad. No, sex is good in its right way. Just like fire in my fireplace is good, fire in my kitchen, bad. 
Fire in the right place? Great. Love it. Awesome. Gives warmth, fulfillment, amazing. Fire in my kitchen, I'm going to lose my head. Sex in marriage, good, warm, comfortable, fulfilling. Sex outside of marriage, ask those who know. Terrible, draining, hurtful, painful, diminishing. My friends, how sad would it be if Freud was right and people truly only exist for the eros side of life? What if we are nothing more than erotic beings? This is the tragedy. And youth, I'm talking to you because you're raised in a world right now that is teaching this. I, I want to tell you, the biblical view of sex and marriage actually preserves what God intended humanity to be. You are more than a sexual being. You're not just an erotic being. You don't just get driven by that. You have dreams. You have you have callings, you have goals, you have all kinds of vision that God has given you. You are more than just neurotic being. Don't be duped by the world that all you are is your sex life. And to live in righteousness and celibacy is just as much of a gift and calling. Marriage is a gift. Marriage is a calling. Not everyone should get married and the gift isn't given to everyone. However, there is another gift. And we just don't, we don't do this enough in church. And so it's worth the time to just explain the beauty of singleness in the church. The beauty of singleness. Can you, do you know how many single people have felt left out? Because we have failed to teach how good and awesome that is. We've made people think throughout church history that if they don't get married, something's wrong with them. That is unbiblical. Jesus says, he explains, not everyone can receive this saying. So he's not saying this is for everyone. Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. Do you hear the, the language of a gift? Only those to whom it has been given. So he's about to talk about singleness, which he uses the metaphor of a eunuch. That is someone who remains unmarried and therefore without sex. That is a eunuch in this metaphor. Okay. It is only to those to whom it has been given. If you are single, you don't feel the calling and the drive for marriage. There is nothing wrong with you. That is a gift. For there are eunuchs who have been made so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of of the kingdom of heaven. My friends, I don't think Paul was an ugly dude. But I think he willingly committed himself to be single and single-minded for the kingdom. And he viewed that as a gift. Some of the reasons our young people are rushing into marriage is because, and, and, and then getting divorced is because we teach them that there's no other way. You either get married or you're messed up. That's not true. God has given single people in the church this calling. Now, it may not be a permanent calling. They may get married later in life. Um, there's, a, there's a great woman that uh, Rachel listens to on a podcast, Nancy Lita Moss. She just got married, and she's like 60 years old. C.S. Lewis remained single until way later in life. But look at what God did in his singleness. 
It's a calling and a gift to be able to focus on the kingdom of God. My friends, if you are married, honor God in your calling, which is to stay married. It is a gift. Enjoy the gifts. There's nothing like it on earth. If you are single, see it as a calling. It might be tough. It might be difficult. You might have to abstain. But what a glorious gift God has given you that you at the end of the day have been given singleness to honor God singly. That's an amazing gift. There is nothing wrong with you. So as Paul says, whatever way you're thinking, stick with that. If you want to be married and you feel called to marriage, you feel driven to marriage, by God, get married. But do so knowing that it's meant to last. Do so in God's way. Do so looking for the attributes in the husband or wife that you are called to look for. If you're like, you know, this whole marriage thing, I just don't like being rushed into it. I don't really feel called right now to really go out and seek it. Great. Honor God in your singleness, which means don't have porn addictions. Don't go out, find one night stands. Honor God with the gift he has given you, whether it be marriage or singleness. Now, final point. As mentioned before, that's all about divorce, but that wasn't the real question, was it? The real question was, who are you? And what authority do you have to tell us how we should live? It was a questioning and testing of the Son of God. They thought that the topic of divorce would be the key to Jesus' public downfall and humiliation, and it wasn't. He takes them all the way back to the beginning where he was and teaches them God's blueprint for marriage and shows them that they were wrong. And not only that, shows them a glimpse at the typical human heart. He doesn't say Moses allowed divorce because they, he says Moses allowed divorce because of your hard hearts, humanities. And it's in that natural hardness and that natural rejection of Jesus that humanity sits. The hard hearts that necessitated the restrictive law of divorce, the hard hearts that were resolute in rejecting God are the very same hard hearts for which Jesus came to die. He came so that your hard heart would be broken in his hand and replaced with a new heart made ready to obey, honor, and love God. So now we've talked about divorce, but the real question is, are you willing to honor God with the new heart purchased for you by his blood? Pray. Father God, I pray that there is a little something for everyone here today, Lord, whether they be unmarried, married, uh, committed to be single, about to be married, dating. Father, those that had past divorces, those who were once abused and rightfully left that marriage, Father, or those that are contemplating divorce. I pray, Father, that in all of this, you um, will administer the gospel, the good news of Jesus over them. Let them see, Father, that you are gracious. And what has been, been done wrong, you will make right. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.